Your weekend begins in Crystal Palette's wine country with sommelier Crystal Cameron Shad. Every week, Crystal takes your palate on a journey from the vineyard to the glass and opens your mind to the endless choices that await your next sip. Uncork your passion starting now on your trip through wine country on Seaville 1075 and 1260 WCHV. And hello, thanks so much for joining us today. We are talking with an esteemed winemaker from one of the oldest and largest wineries in Virginia. Brad Hansen from Prince Michel will be joining us in just a minute. Prince Michel is located off Route 29 in Leon, just south of Culpeper, and they've been a mainstay on the Virginia wine scene since the early 80s. In fact, they were one of the first dozen wineries to open their doors in Virginia. We're going to discuss the exciting things going on with the Prince Michel and Rapidan River collections, and we're also going to sample a brand new release today. Actually, it's not even released to the public just yet, but you'll be getting uh, plenty of it soon, the Pet Nat. This is one of the coolest things in wine right now, and if you're not familiar with this wine style, stick around. We'll fill you in in just a little bit. But first, let's welcome Brad to the program. Thanks so much for coming by the studio, Brad. Thank you, Crystal. Appreciate the opportunity to come down here. Yeah, it's great to see you. I know you've been uh, involved in the Virginia wine scene for quite some time, going on almost two decades. Prince Michel's been around for a long time as well on Route 29. And uh, for those of you that don't know about Prince Michel, would you care to give us a little history on the estate? Sure. Uh, back in 1982, a couple from France came over, uh, Jean and Sylviane Leduc, and they started uh, what they felt was their, their dream uh, winery up in Madison County. Um, they grew the winery upwards uh, of about 300 acres which at the time was uh, pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Um, Even by w- today's standards, that would be very significant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, they actually purchased a winery down in Orange County, the Rapidan River Vineyards, um, and that, that joined in with Prince Michel to, to make the total acreage over, over 400 acres. Mm-hmm. Um, that went along really well up until the early 2000s. Uh, uh, Jean passed away, and... Um, a local lady that was one of our wine growers, Kristen Easton, purchased in 2005. And so we've been going gangbusters since then. She's really excited, a lot of energy. And um, as, as you said, we're putting out a lot of nice new uh, creations. And you certainly have a, a very large portfolio, which is exciting, something for pretty much everyone's palate and everyone's budget, which is always a great thing. And I know, Brad, you have uh, a lot of experience in the industry, and you have uh, accumulated, or let's say, 400-plus medals on your award-winning wines over the years, which is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. Well, it helps to have so many years making wine. Um, yeah. And I'm not trying to age you here. You just get some experience. So. <laughs> I came up uh, to Virginia in... Uh, 1999, uh, about this time of year, uh, had been working as a winemaker down in Georgia for about 10 years. Wow. So, yeah. Spent 10 years working in Georgia. That's right. Okay. That's right. Similar as far as the climate goes, mm-hmm. it was up in the, the North Georgia mountains, uh, similar to the mountains that we work with here in Virginia. Uh, a little bit different in the consumer climate. Um, to, to give you an example, we had six wineries when I started back in uh, 1990 in Georgia, and there are very few more even to date. So it hasn't grown like the Virginia industry has over the last uh, 20 years. One thing I'd like to note, too, that a lot of people may not be aware of is that all 50 states are producing wine of some caliber. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's amazing testimony to to, the the pioneers that 
you know, started here in Virginia, mm-hmm. kind of the Renaissance uh, back in the, the late 70s and early 80s when the Leduc started. And that is an interesting testament when you're looking at Virginia pushing almost 300 wineries today, and Georgia really hasn't grown that much since then. So you spent some time in Georgia in the South, and what kind of grapes were you working with down there? Well, we were trying our best to grow uh, vinifera, okay. Chardonnay, Merlot, mm-hmm. but primarily the grapes that were the most popular in the uh, in the marketplace were the muscadine, the, the native grapes, which was, you know, they were a lot of fun to work with. Um, but I was being called by uh, by the vinifera. So that's when I, I, I put the word out to uh, to try to get back into this area. And uh, Virginia was first on the list. Okay. Well, that's, well why, was, uh, why was Virginia first on the list? I mean, still in the late 90s, we were starting to see a little bit of a renaissance. We were starting to see some more investments. But what was so appealing to Virginia? And I asked this question because I know you're originally from Seattle. Mm-hmm. And uh, it looks like you worked at some uh, some really great estates when you were out in Washington State, Chateau St. Chateau Michel, excuse me. And... Um, Washington has a really stellar reputation of producing fine wines, too. So what was the appeal about a West Coast boy wanting to make wine in Virginia? Well, my family and I had moved over to uh, Maryland back in the 70s. And so I, I grew up the rest of my life up in Maryland. Okay. And I I went over to uh, Marshall University in West Virginia for my uh, my undergraduate. And that was in plant biology, plant pathology. And so I had a, a keen interest in growing plants and uh so after graduating, I moved back into the Maryland area. But at that time, I was of drinking age, and I would uh, accompany my parents down into the Virginia wine scene. And at that time, it was it was really kind of in its in its first regrowth, um, and it was a very exciting time. Um, a lot of those wineries aren't around anymore, but I think that sparked an interest. Um, I had been working with USDA, but the more I thought about the grape growing and the winemaking aspect down here in Virginia. It looked like a really exciting uh, opportunity. So uh, I ran off and got a master's degree in uh, in fermentation uh, chemistry. Very interesting. And so the rest is history, I guess you can say, because you've been with Prince Michel for going on 18 years now. Uh, when you look at where we've come in Virginia, and you can speak to this um, as a winemaker, as a, you know, as a grower, uh, when you look at the evolution of Virginia and just how far we've come in the past decade or two um, when you think about the quality level. I know I moved to Virginia in 06, and people were just starting to kind of talk about Virginia wine. And, okay, you know, the dessert wines are good, the white wines are okay, but, you know, the red wines, eh, you know, red wines aren't so great. Um, as a winemaker, what have you seen as an evolution, and what's the testament to the quality evolution that we're seeing today? Yeah, that that's a good question. Um you know, I, I look at Virginia um, as a as a major player in American winemaking. Um, you know, obviously California and Washington, Oregon, uh, New York; these were all states that were very very popular in the mindset of of the market. But as Virginia started, it started um, like you would see most kind of pioneering um, cottage industries. And you had a lot of kind of mom and pop deciding to get into the industry. Um, some of those early vintages were not what you know we would necessarily say were the, the best quality. Uh, they were a good start. And I think at the time that I was starting out, we were starting to get a lot of interest from European winemakers coming into the area and bringing with them a, a much broader, more focused uh, knowledge. 
But I, th- I think the, the biggest impact that we've had over the last 20 years is in our vineyards. You know, early on we were planting whatever we could get from California nurseries, and we are planting them in perhaps places where we ought not to have been trying to plant. Mm-hmm. And as we see now, we're moving you know, up into the, to the higher elevations. We're, we're, we're choosing soils to rootstock. We're choosing clones that, uh, that suit our climate a little bit better. Because we do have a very unique climate in Virginia. Oh, we definitely do. Um, we were talking earlier about what's going on right now and pruning. And mm-hmm. um, you know, here we are in January, and it's going to be close to 70 degrees here. Uh, yeah, so... That's Virginia. If you don't like the weather, it'll change tomorrow. But definitely a challenge for winemakers. It is. It is. We, uh, you know, the ideal situation would be, you know, hot, dry summer growing seasons and good, you know, moderately cold freezing temperatures in the winter. And we don't always get that in Virginia. But I think I think that lends itself to some of that excitement. Um, a lot of people in the industry say, you know, if, if we can if we can grow it here, then we can we can grow it anywhere. Um, there are a lot less challenging growing areas in the world. Um, but I think I think what is you know, great evidence is to see some of the the wines that we have in the bottle now that can compete with wines from all over the world. I think that's one of the coolest things I've seen um, with the industry is seeing these blind tasting competitions and been to the Virginia Wine Summit for the past couple of years and um, stacking them up against, you know, stacking some of the uh, wines against their Burgundy and Bordeaux counterparts and things like that. And some of the Rhone varietals, the Viognier and things like that are doing quite well in blind tastings, which is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And who would have thought, certainly the ones that were experimenting early on probably knew this, but who would have thought, you know, Viognier and Petit Menzang and... Albarino and some of these varieties that a lot of people, you know, perhaps hadn't even heard of ten years ago, twenty years ago, and they, you know, Chardonnay and Merlot will will still always be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, probably the the major players. But it's exciting to to get some of these these lesser known varieties. It is exciting, and a lot of them are doing quite well in Virginia. And speaking of that, we're going to take a short break, but on the other side, we're going to open up the pet nap. We're going to do some sampling, and you're going to tell us all about this really unique kind of wine trend going on right now. Stay with us. You're listening to Crystal Pellets Wine Country on Seaville 107.5 and 1260 WCHV. Wine Studio, understanding our world through wine and our part in that world. Wine Studio is a Twitter-based beverage education program produced by certified sommelier Tina Mori, who's worked in the food and wine industry for over 20 years. Wine Studio is grassroots marketing for beverage brands, regional organizations, PR firms, all who would like to reach millions each weekly session. Wine Studio also benefits tasting participants who meet winemakers, taste exciting wines, and become involved with beverage cultures from all over the world. Follow the Twitter hashtag, Wine Studio. That's hashtag, Wine Studio. Tuesdays, 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and join the conversation. For more information, visit winestudiotina.weebly.com. Welcome back to the show. If you're just tuning in, we're joined by Brad Hansen. He is the winemaker and general manager for Prince Michel. And he's joining us in studio today. We talked a little bit about the history of the uh, vineyard. And now we're going to get into the wine portfolio because, let's face it, that's everyone's favorite part. Right, Brad? That's true. So you actually, you're a winemaker for two different lines, the Prince Michel and the Rapidan River. So let's tell people a little bit about the differences between the two. Sure. 
So, um, as I said, some time ago, the the previous ownership purchased Rapid and River Vineyards down in Orange County. Um, at the time, they were growing mostly Germ- German varieties, Riesling and Gewurztraminer, which, as we talked earlier, when we have a climate that's that's hot and humid, those are those are varieties that have a lot of difficulty. But um, we decided uh, with Kristen to go ahead and, and make the brand differentiation between the two as the the drier wines that see more time in the winery, barrel time perhaps, blended wines, those would be Prince Michel. And then the sweeter line would be the the Rapid and River. Okay. So under the Rapid and River, we have what I call more fun wines. We do have the Riesling, but we also have a blended peach and a blended apple, a blackberry, um, we even have a chocolate. Okay, for those dessert lovers out there. That's right. Yes. That's right. And uh, you know, a lot of people come into the wine shop and they 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 talk dry, but they 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 buy sweet. Isn't that funny? It's um, I think that's uh, sweet and fruity are probably the two most misused words when you're defining uh, your wine palette, mm-hmm. your preferences. Because so often people are like, "Oh, I like dry fruity wine," and then you give them a dry fruit forward one. It's like, no, this isn't sweet enough. So it's kind of funny that you say that. Yeah, and what we find with our with our fruit wines, the peach and the apple and the the blackberry, people before they taste it, they have a preconceived notion it's going to be syrupy sweet. But the the idea when we were blending these to begin with was to keep it no sweeter than the actual fruit. You know, people love peach, people love blackberries, and you know, there's no reason to to really sweeten it up over over the top. So mm-hmm. they've they've really, in fact, the peach has become our most popular wine that we uh, that we make. What's not to love about summer ripe peaches, right, during the summertime? That's right. Well, let's get into something. You mentioned fun wines, and I know you brought something in today for us to uh, share. And I think you're going to pour us some glasses now. And uh, the pet gnat. Yes, I brought a pet gnat. I'm going to go ahead and pour it here. That sounds awesome. So a pet gnat, you may be asking yourself if you don't know. uh, Bon Appetit has recently called it Champagne's Cool Kid Sister. You hear that? I love the sound of wine being poured. Um, so it's got the reputation of being the cool kid sister, and it really is kind of something fun. It's different. It's experimental. And, Brad, I'm going to let you kind of take – you are the winemaker, and this is your first time doing this, I believe. Mm, yes, it is. So let's talk about it. Tell, tell our audience what it is. Well, this is a big departure for us. Uh, in the past, Prince Michel has made sparkling wine. The old method champenois style where everything was controllable uh, and it was very repeatable year after year. Um, with the kind of in vogue place that pet gnats uh, are at the moment, I decided that this was a good year to, to give it a try. Um, so, yeah, this this is really my, my very first baby. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, I am kind of an obsessive clean freak when it comes to winemaking. So this is um, giving you a little palpitations here? It does. It does. <laughs> this this is uh, the, the way Pet Nat is made and the way it, it is different than conventional wines is in a conventional wine, you'd, you'd pick the grapes and you would process them. Uh, during that processing, we would normally add yeast. Uh, we might add a little bit of sulfur to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to control the fermentation. Uh, before bottling, we would filter the wine. We might find the wine to, to, to really clarify it and make that crystal clear. Um, and it might get you know, a final uh, filtration right at the bottling. Well, Pet Nat is completely the opposite. It, it's, more, it's more or less my wild child. This one, in fact, this is 100% Petit Menzang. 
and this represents about one ton, and we we pressed off the juice and chilled the juice down uh, to about 38 degrees overnight, and what that did was give us some clarity on the juice. Um, then I, I siphoned off the clean juice and put it in a tank and essentially let nature take the rest. So... As it warmed up, it started fermenting on its own using the the wild native yeast that were on the uh, the grape skins out in the vineyard. Um, I added no sugar, uh, you know, I added no sulfur. I didn't filter. I didn't fine. So pretty much, I monitored the the fermentation. I watched the sugar diminish, and as as it got to almost the end of fermentation, when there was just very almost imperceptible. Um, bubbles coming off during that fermentation, the, the carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were we were less than one uh, degree of sweetness. We bottled it up, and it, it was from harvest to bottling, wasn't even ten days. Wow! So that's a quick turnaround. I mean, it's it, a quick turnaround yeah. getting on the shelves. It's a much more obviously less labor intensive process than making something in the traditional method or even the Charmat method, which Prosecco is made in. Exactly. And I noticed too. Um, you do crown caps on these because there's not as much pressure, right? That's right. That's right. These, these are crown caps. Uh, nothing like that kind of volcanic explosion you get with right. a with a sparkling wine or a, or a champagne. And Petnat is uh, Petalant Naturel or naturally sparkling. That's kind of what it breaks down to, if you will. Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about this. You just poured it in our glasses. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, there's no sulfur. There's no filtration. It's not fined. It has a, you know, I'm actually amazed at that there's decent clarity with this. So even though it's not fined or filtered, right? I mean, I think there's some decent, it's a touch, touch right. cloudy, but that's to be expected. Yeah, in fact, I, I did a very light disgorging. Did you? Okay. And what that simply means is that we turned the bottles upside down, so all the 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 gunk, the the yeast cells, and some of the protein, and all the things that that fall out as sediment, they were collected down uh, on the capsule. Okay. And we froze the capsule like you would do in the traditional style. Exactly. Popped it open, and then closed it up with a new crown cap real quickly. And one thing that I think is really cool, and we're going to talk about the flavor notes on this in one minute. But the thing that I thought was really cool is that um, you, you you said you're a clean freak. You like you like to know the results of things. And with Petnap, because of the fermentation in the bottle kind of thing, um, you're looking at every bottle could be a little bit different, right? Oh, that's right. Um, you know, in essence, these bottles are still fermenting. Um, there's there's no real way to to finalize that fermentation until all the, the sugar is used up. Um, while this, because it's Petit Menzang, Petit Menzang tends to have a, a pretty driving um, um, acid level. Mm-hmm. So this is still pretty tart, but, um, and, and it, you know, when I measure it in the lab, it does come off as uh, having no sugar left, but, you know, there could be a very small fermentation still continuing. That's going to change every bottle there's there's no consistency from one bottle to another which makes it really exciting so this is this is definitely a drink young this is not something you want to lay down you want to drink this you know you want to pop it open when you get it right yeah yeah because you know the quick time between harvest and bottling we bottled on on this i'm sorry october 10th okay so it would have been released a little bit earlier but since it's our first we we had to work on the labels Sure. And the label is um, super fun, too. It's super colorful. And uh, yeah, what is it, what is the price point on something like this? This one, we're still kind of going round and round, but it, okay. it'll be roughly $40 a bottle. Okay. Um, and how many cases? We have 100. Wow. And you're releasing it to your wine club coming up soon, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So this will, um, on the, the 3rd of February, we're releasing it to the wine club. 
and they'll have a week to purchase at their special rate. And then on the 11th, we'll be releasing it to the general public. That's very cool. So let's talk about flavors, though, because that's what everybody, we got to mm-hmm. kind of paint a picture for those listeners, right? You know, PetNet, we're, we're talking all the wine geeky stuff, but let's break down to what it actually is. And, you know, you pour it in the glass. It's uh, it's this really pretty, like, pale golden hue to it. You get that nice effervescence. And it's almost this kind of hybrid to me between wine, cider, and beer. You've kind of got this trio going on, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exactly. When, when, when I've been tasting this along the way, I, I keep coming back to, to hard cider. Yes. And so it has has the the fine bubbles that you find in cider, and also has to me kind of a an apple skin, mm-hmm. maybe green apple. Yeah, and definitely the green apple. I'm getting some stone fruit in there as well, and almost mm-hmm. some of those tropical undertones that you would traditionally associate with petite mincing, maybe a little mango, um, yeah. and some spicy ginger. I feel like I'm getting some spicy ginger on the back finish, which I is very cool. I see that, yeah. And, and as I said earlier, maybe some honey or honeycomb. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's an interesting mix. I, I definitely can taste the petite mincing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many other people are doing this with petite mincing, but it's a very... Um, it's so... Um, it's so intriguing. I just, every time you just poured me a glass a few minutes ago and I keep putting my nose back in it and it keeps like telling me a different story. I mean, it's so effervescent and so full of life. Yeah. Yeah. So the, as I said, this is exciting because it's the first experiment. Kristen has been uh, very gracious to let me experiment down in the cellar every now and then. And uh, um, this was this year's experiment. And, um, you know, you, you never know if it's going to work out. Sure. I mean, that's no risk, no reward, though, right? I mean, some that's of the right. best. I mean, look at uh, look at champagne. Look at how that was actually created, right? I mean, yep. that was an accident. Exactly. So White Zinfandel. You so, know, oh, all these right, things. right. So Petnac could be the new uh, the new big wine trend. What's know? ironic is we, we call it the, the big new wine, but it really is probably the most ancient wine that's out there. This is this is what people would be drinking, yeah. you know, a thousand years ago. When you look at a Prosecco, I did a master class up in Prosecco at the Capital Wine School recently, and they had a Colfondo, which is a unfiltered, unfine mm-hmm. Prosecco done in the same style. And everybody was going crazy over it. And it was like, and they were talking about the ancient tradition. And that's how, you know, the great grandmothers would be drinking their Prosecco was in that yeah. style. Yeah, definitely. Before we had filters, before we knew what sulfur would do, before we knew, you know, the the engine behind this as far as the yeast goes, People would just crush grapes and let it ferment by itself, and, and at some point they would be tasting and drinking it, and it would still be bubbly, just like this. And for people listening in, I just want to touch real quickly on sulfur. Um, that's something that, um, you know, it's all obviously used to kind of halt fermentation, but from a winemaker perspective, when you're saying you're not using sulfur, obviously that's a gamble for you too, right? Because you can't control it. It is, yeah. Um, I, I'm the nervous winemaker. I probably wouldn't try unsulfured still wines. Um, because because of the nature of this wine, I wanted to be completely hands-off. I wanted people to be able to taste the finished product without really any meddling by the winemaker. So this is the way it tastes when it normally is fermenting. Um, so I'm used to, to fermenting Petit Menzang. As far as not adding sulfur goes, we have a little bit of protection because of the pressure, because of the carbon dioxide. Sure. Um, but yeah... Th- it's it's not going to be one of those wines that you're going to want to put in your cellar for the next couple of years. It's so, like I said, it's just fun. It's intriguing. It's something to kind of drink now. And it is evolving in the glass, which I think is one of those cool curiosity, great conversation starters. Mm-hmm. And I might end up finishing this bottle if we're not careful. <laughs> so let's change gears real quick. You've got a, a huge portfolio. You're doing something beautiful. You're doing the Symbius, which is your classic Bordeaux blend that you're doing. You've been doing that for a while. And you mentioned you have another new release that I wanted to talk about, uh, Rosé, a Pinot Noir Rosé. 
That's right. We um, we have a vineyard that we work with that had planted uh, Pinot Grigio some years back. And by accident, the nursery uh, shipped them uh, a small amount of Pinot Noir. Oops. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it happens. <laughs> to our benefit, right? And luckily for them and, and for me, um, they were able to keep the Pinot Noir separated. So we've been uh, lucky enough to get their, their Pinot Noir. And we've in the past, we've been blending that into some of our reds. Um, but last year, uh, in 2015, we, uh, we made a small amount of, uh, rosé, a dry rosé from the Pinot Noir. And it's absolutely, it's lovely. I mean, you have everything that you expect out of Pinot Noir. You get the raspberry and the strawberry, um, just very light pink. And we released that, um, back in December. So it's just, uh. A lot of people don't know we have it yet. Well, that's very exciting. I know you mentioned it in passing on the commercial break, and I said, oh, we've got to talk about that because uh, rosé, you, you mentioned before, roses were kind of out of vogue for a while in the past couple of years. It's been rosé, 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 and we're going, we're graduating more from that sweeter style back to that dry Provence kind of style, which I think yeah. is so appealing for not just summer, because unfortunately people put rosé in the box of summer. It's a beautiful wine all year long, and it's actually one of my favorite things to serve at Thanksgiving because it's so versatile. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm in love with Pinot Noir. Yes. And unfortunately, well, unfortunately, we can't do a lot with it here in Virginia because of our climate. Right. But um, except for those higher elevations like down at Nikita Ridge, they're doing a great job. Down exactly. There. Yeah. yeah. So it's few and far between. But um, it certainly makes a, a tremendous uh, uh, addition for a rosé. Yeah. I, well, I can't wait to try that one, too. So we're mm-hmm. going to take another quick break. On the other side, I want you to tell us a little bit about how to get to your, uh, how to get to Prince Michel, some tasting room hours and all that good stuff. Stay with us, Brad. We'll be right back. Wine Studio. Understanding our world through wine and our part in that world. Wine Studio is a Twitter-based beverage education program produced by certified sommelier Tina Mori, who's worked in the food and wine industry for over 20 years. Wine Studio is grassroots marketing for beverage brands, regional organizations, PR firms, all who would like to reach millions each weekly session. Wine Studio also benefits tasting participants who meet winemakers, taste exciting wines, and become involved with beverage cultures from all over the world. Follow the Twitter hashtag, Wine Studio. That's hashtag Wine Studio, Tuesdays, 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and join the conversation. For more information, visit winestudiotina.weebly.com. And welcome back to the show. Brad Hansen still in studio with us, and he's going to tell us all about where you can find his exciting portfolio of wines. We've talked about uh, the Prince Michel line and spent a lot of time talking about the Pet Nat, which uh, is just a really super fun wine. It'll be released in February to the general public, February 11th to the general public. And um, so, Brad, let us know where we can find you. I understand you have two tasting rooms. We do. Actually, we have three now. We have three now. Okay. I'm sorry. So the, <laughs> the main tasting room, Prince Michel, is up in Madison County, about a half hour north of here. Um, we're right on 29. Can't miss us. Um, as you get past the town of Madison on your way to Culpeper, you'll find us there on the left. Uh, we have a tasting room, a seasonal tasting room up on the top of Carter Mountain. Okay. So when you're up there picking your apples or your peaches, that's where we are. And then we... Uh, that's this, very convenient, right? It, it is. Yes. Um, we, uh, this year, back in 2016, we, we opened up, uh, the peach orchard out in Crozet. Again, the child's operation with their, their peach sure. uh, growing out there. They, uh, they built us a, a tasting room. So you can come taste us at any of the three places. And you have, have your full lineup at all three locations? Or? Well, most, uh, you know, the, the main location up in Madison County is where we have all of the sure. wines. 
Uh, we have a, a more limited supply at the, the two uh, Charlottesville locations. Okay. And I know we got deep into uh, the Pet Nat, talked a little bit about your rosé, but obviously you have a full portfolio of whites. You have Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. I mean, so, sorry, how did I go Pinot Noir? Chardonnay, Petit Vincent, Viognier, as well as a whole array of reds too, right? We do. We do. We're blessed with very, uh, very good distribution. We're, we're all around the state um, with most of our wines, but there's, there's a number of wines that we don't distribute. It's small quantity, small batch productions you can only find up at the, uh, the main location. So let me ask you one, que- one question in closing. What is your wine of the moment, your limited batch, small batch wine of the moment that you're really uh, loving right now out of your portfolio? Well, obviously right now it's the Pet Nat. Okay. Yeah, this, yeah. this one has been a, been a really fun kind of, as I said earlier, wild, wild child. Yes. And, uh, it's an what's, experiment that seemed to work. What's old is made new again, right? That's exactly right. Well, very exciting. So, and is Pet Nat just going to be available at the main tasting room? Um, still unsure? Still unsure. I, okay. I believe at this point that's that's where we're going to have okay. it. Okay. And again, 100 yeah. cases, limited quantities. So, uh, it's going to be available until it runs out. Okay. Well, head up to Prince Michel in Madison and get a bottle of Pet Nat after February 11th because it's definitely something that you want to try. Brad, thanks so much for spending time with us. The time goes by way too fast. I know there's a lot more to talk about. We'll have you back on sometime soon. Wonderful. Crystal, thank you. Absolutely. And thank you for tuning in to Crystal Palace Wine Country this weekend. I hope you have a fabulous weekend filled with love, laughter, and wonderful wine. Cheers.